So this week uh, I was reading an article about Amazon's Alexa devices. You may have one or two in your home. Um, you may have bought a family member an Alexa as a gift. If, you've not, if you're thinking um, and struggling what to buy for a family member this Christmas, an Alexa is always a, a good idea, a very popular gift. Although you may not want to do that after you hear what I'm about to tell you. So the article uh, that I was reading told the story of a woman called Danielle. She was from um, Portland, Oregon. And one night she was having a very private and intimate conversation with her husband. During the conversation, her phone rang. It was one of her husband's colleagues. And he said these words, unplug your Alexa device now. You can imagine she was shocked. She first didn't really understand what her co-worker was getting at. But the co-worker then mentioned that he knew exactly what her and her husband were talking about. Well, you can just imagine the dismay and the shock that overcame her. Let me tell you what happened. When she contacted the Amazon customer service, they confirmed that this was an extremely rare occurrence. But as they were talking, Alexa in the background was triggered with the word Alexa although they didn't actually mention Alexa, Alexa thought she heard her name, and so it turned on. And Alexa recorded, at this point, was recording their conversation, and during their conversation, they used the two words, send message. And so Alexa took the recorded message that her and her husband were speaking, and sent it. And in the conversation that they were having, they were speaking about one of her husband's co-workers, and that was a name in the contact list, and so Alexa sent their private, intimate conversation to said colleague. Well, I cannot think of anything worse. Well, as I was reading that article, I couldn't help but think about the passage we're looking at this morning because Jesus' brothers clearly had their conversation eavesdropped on by John. And John, under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose to record that conversation in his gospel for all generations to read about it. And this morning, we're going to eavesdrop on their conversation. Now, I don't know about your family, but in my family, often when I have conversations, at least uh, certainly so with my siblings, there there are some conversations I I don't wish to remember. I often say things that I live to regret. I don't know why it is, but so often that sometimes the, the harshest words or the foolish words that, that we can speak often are uttered to those whom we love the most. Well, in this passage, Jesus' brothers are going to ridicule him. They're going to scoff at him. They're going to mock him, taunt him. And then Jesus is going to have to respond to them. So we get two points this morning, the ridicule of Jesus by his brothers, and then the response of Jesus to his brothers. And just before we look at these two points, let me just set the scene, and I'll set the scene by saying, do you remember the names of Jesus' brothers? Matthew 13 tells us that Jesus had four half-brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. 
So as we think in this passage, that's who we're thinking of. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Now John sets a scene for us in verses 1 and 2. He tells us there that after this, that's after the events of chapter 6. We know that six months have actually passed because the events of chapter 6 took place at the Feast of Passover. After this, six months later, Jesus was going about in Galilee. Now, you'll remember that Galilee was Jesus' hometown region. This was familiar territory. In fact, in John chapter 4, verse 44, Jesus said this, A prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And Jesus' brothers will prove this very point in what they have to say to Jesus. Now, if you look at verse 1, you'll see that Jesus was going about Galilee because he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. See, when it says there, Jesus chose not, all of Jesus' life was lived in obedience to God the Father's will. And so this chose not, it's a, it, it's, it conveys a, the sense of divine agency. Jesus did not, chose not to go to Galilee, not because he was fearing for his life, but he chose not because it was not his father's timing. And what's interesting is this is the second time, and we're not even halfway into John's gospel, that we have read that the Jews were seeking to kill him. Jesus was a wanted man. Do you remember how he he signed his death warrant? It's back in chapter 5. He healed a crippled man on the Sabbath. And then he said that God was his father. And when the Jews heard him say that, he was claiming equality with God. It was blasphemy. And so we read in John chapter 5, verse 18, they sought to kill him all the more. When we come to verse 2, and John informs us that the Feast of Booths was at hand. Now, I'm not going to unpack the, the background to the Feast of Booths. I'll do that next week. Suffice to say, everyone was making their way to Jerusalem. Everyone was heading to Judea because the Feast of Booths was one of the most sacred and special events in the Jewish calendar. So the scene is set. Jesus is in his hometown of Galilee. He's avoiding going up to Judea because it's not the Father's time. But up in Judea and Jerusalem, the Feast of Tabernacles is underway. So let's pick things up with the ridicule of Jesus by his brothers. Now, as we listen on to this exchange, I want you to know that there is mocking in his brothers' voices. Just just look at verse 3. It opens with the word so. It could also be rendered therefore. So in light of what we've just read in the previous verses, that people want Jesus dead up in Judea and that the Feast of Booths has gone on, Therefore his brother said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. Now just think about that, right? Everyone knows Jesus is a wanted man by the Jews up in Judea. Everyone's on their way up to Judea. And now Jesus' brothers say to him, leave here, go there. Now, we don't know if... What they said here was, was truly sinister that they wanted him dead. But 
It is interesting to note that, see when they say leave here and go to Judea? In the original, this is a command, but it's a polite entreaty. It's the way an inferior would speak to a superior. But in the case of the disciples, they're, they're mocking their older brother. They're pretending to be polite. Leave here, go to Judea, come on Jesus. And then they say, that your disciples may see the works you're doing. Now, if you remember back in chapter 6, what happened at the end? A large number of Jesus' disciples turned away from him, rejected him. Only his 12 stayed with him and followed him. Remember what Peter said? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So when they speak here of your disciples, or being rather playful, Jesus, go up to Judea that your disciples may see the works that you're doing. That reveals two things. Jesus' brothers did not see Jesus, did not see themselves as Jesus' disciples. And they thought they could give Jesus a bit of advice. Go up to Judea, show your disciples, meaning not so many as you once had. If, you, if you've got siblings, you know what it's like when you, you mock them, you poke fun at them. Well, these brothers continue all the more. Look at verse 4. For no one works in secret, Jesus, if he seeks to be known openly. It's interesting. The brothers looked on at Jesus' life and, and they were convinced that Jesus was all about himself. Jesus wanted to be known Jesus wanted to be loved. And they say, Jesus, if you want to be known, if you want to be loved, this is not the place. Galilee? No, no, no. Go up to Judea. Go to Jerusalem. There's where all the people are at. Go make a name for yourself. And then just look at what they add. If you do these things, these works, show yourself to the world. Now, this is without a doubt intended to over over the top mockery of his ministry. No, Jesus, you think you're such a big deal. Well, then go up and show the world that you are. Now, it's rather ironic because the brothers speak more truth than they realize. Little do they know their older brother is a huge deal because he is the son of God. And he will indeed show himself to the world. He will go up to Jerusalem and he will not perform the works that they envisage. He will perform the work his father had planned and purposed for him to do before he laid the foundation of the earth. Die on the cross of Calvary. And what is more, there is coming a day when every single person who has ever lived will see Jesus with their own eyes when he comes again. And so his brothers, they they, they mock him, they insult him, but little do they know that their brother is indeed the Messiah, the the Son of God. Now, John very helpfully in verse 5 informs us of something that that, that seems pretty evident as we've been reading through these verses. Look at verse 5. He takes us to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of his brother's unbelieving hearts. John tells us, for not even his brothers believed in him. 
And see, so you can stand back and think about that just for a moment. Isn't that a little strange? They grew up in the same house as Jesus. They spent an awful lot of time with Jesus. They would have heard Jesus pray. They'd have seen Jesus read the scriptures. They knew that Jesus never sinned. And yet, they did not believe in him. They rejected him. I say it's strange, but it should not be surprising because of what we sang in Psalm 69. It was always prophesied that when the Messiah would come, he would be estranged by his brothers. And just notice how specific the prophecy was in Psalm 69. His mother's sons. It's what John wrote about in the prologue. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You know, one of the things we've been seeing as we've been walking through John's gospel is that there is so much unbelief. The crowds, the disciples, the religious leaders. You know, one of the things when we look about our our culture here in the West, at least in in the UK, we can see so much unbelief. And and perhaps as Christians, right, we, we, we see who Jesus is. We see he's the Son of God. We see how incredible and how good and how loving he is. And it's truly astonishing. There's so many people who who don't believe in him. But as we we go on, we're going to see that actually that's not that surprising. Now, I think there's a a couple of pastoral lessons we could just draw out of this. Despite the fact that Jesus' brothers grew up in close proximity to Jesus, and despite the fact that Jesus' brothers grew up with godly parents, Mary and Joseph, it's clearly evident that for a season in their lives, they did not walk with the Lord. If you're a Christian parent here this morning, and if you're seeking to raise your kids in the ways of the Lord, and if your kids are not walking with the Lord presently, can I say this to you? Do not beat yourself up. Beat yourself up. I meet so many Christian parents, and they feel really guilty thinking things like, it must be my poor parenting attempts that have caused my children to reject Jesus. Now, they don't say it like that, but, but that's what they feel. But listen, we know the doctrine of salvation. Salvation only comes about in a person's life because of the sovereignty of God. No one can make a person believe. Only God can give a person the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the heart to understand. And so, so, so Christian parents, go on praying, go on loving, go on trusting in the covenant faithfulness of God, go on encouraging your son or your daughter. Keep your eyes focused on God. Now, there, there's another lesson here, isn't there? If you are a Christian but your family members aren't Christians, then there's something that you can draw real comfort from here. And it's this. Jesus understands completely your experience. Jesus knew what it was to be rejected by his family. 
In fact, Jesus knew what it was to be misunderstood, to be ridiculed, to be mocked, to be taunted. It's back to our call to worship. We have a high priest, don't we, that's able to sympathize with us. We have a high priest who, who understands us, and he understands any of you here who, who are growing up in a household where the others don't believe. Okay, so we've seen the ridicule of Jesus' brothers. Now let's look at the response of Jesus to his brothers. Look at verse 6. This is a rather cryptic statement. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Now the first time I read that, the instant thought I had was, Jesus has said this before. And the last time Jesus spoke in this way, it was to his mum at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. He said to her, My hour is not yet. Now, when I preached on that passage, I said when, when Jesus refers to his hour there, he's referring to his forthcoming death and resurrection. And so for a moment, I thought to myself, this must be what Jesus means here when he says, my time has not yet come. Only problem with that is Jesus uses a different word. He doesn't use hour, he uses time. And, and also, it can't mean his forthcoming death and resurrection because he says to his brothers, your time is always here, but they don't have a forthcoming death and resurrection. So what's Jesus referring to? Well, his brothers have commanded him, leave here, go up to Judea. Jesus says, my time to go up there has not yet come, but your time is here. You can go up to Judea, up to Jerusalem, whenever you want. Now, if we're listening carefully to this conversation what Jesus says here, I suspect, really hurt his brothers. Because you know what Jesus is saying to his brothers? Your life isn't under special constraint. Your life is not ordered by God the Father's will. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to them, your lives right now do not have the same eternal significance as far as God is concerned regarding my life here on earth. My time's not yet come, but your time is always here. Now, one of the things we, we know about Jesus is that throughout his life, he was always working to God's schedule. He was always living his life in perfect obedience to the Father's will. The one who, lay, who set the priorities for Jesus' life was his Father in heaven. Jesus lived with this profound sense of the eternal purpose of the Father. And, and I want to ask us this question. Who is it that sets your priorities? Who is it that sets the agenda for your life? Like, if you're a Christian here, you know that the right answer is God ought to, but let's be honest. Who is it that sets the priorities for your life? And we, we, we live, don't we, constantly, every day of our lives, and there are so many voices competing and vying for our attention, indeed our devotion. And so often we give in to the voices, not least our own inner voice that says, live for self. If you want it, go get it. And then there's all these other voices 
whether it's our friends, our peers, our work colleagues, the, the voices in culture, all telling us how we ought to live our lives. You know, uh, we might not think that we, we live in conformity to our culture, but this is a great season, right? Christmas, where everybody feels under the stress, feels under the stress and burden to make this the most special and happiest time of the year. And so people who will, will spend way above and beyond, people will try and do everything to make this the best Christmas for their children, for their family. And it never delivers in the way that they want. And yet we all live sometimes in this cultural conformity. But listen, we were made to live in step with the will of God. He's the one who knows us. He's the one who made us. He's the one who understands us better than we understand ourselves. He knows what's best for us. He knows what's good for us. Hence the reason he redeems us and he saves us with a purpose. Just as Jesus' passion was for the Father's will, so ought our passion to be to do the Father's will. You know, when you stand back and you think about Jesus' passion, you sang about it in Psalm 69, he says, passion for my Father's house consumes me, zeal. You know, you know what's so striking about that? Is the work he was called to do was to suffer and die the sinless one for sinful ones. The righteous one for unrighteous ones. And the reason he, he did it is because of love. Love for you and love for his father. He knew, he understood, was best. His purposes are good. And, and so Christian, what a great motivation, what a great call for us to seek to live in step with his will for our lives. Now, just so that you can see that this interpretation, when Jesus said to his brothers, you know, you're, you're, you can do whatever you want to do at any time, was Jesus saying God is far more concerned with his life. Look at what he goes on to say in the next verse. He says to them, and this would hurt as well, verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Next year, we'll, we'll come to John chapter 15. And in John chapter 15, Jesus will say this. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. And then he'll tell his disciples this. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. So here's the criterion Jesus is saying to his brothers. You are not of me you don't belong to me. You belong to this world. You love the world. You, you're in step with the purposes and plans of this world. You're not in step with the purposes and plans of God. And then Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room in John 15, he says, this is how you know that you are mine, that you are my true brothers. The world hates you just as it hated me. 
And again, there's a a pastoral lesson for us. Listen, one of the things that can easily get us discouraged as God's people is that Christianity is mocked, laughed at, ridiculed, even hated. But Jesus says, listen, if, if you understand, if you understand his words, that's actually a sign that you're his and not of this world. And every time I stop and think about this, right, isn't it? Isn't it insane that the world hated Jesus? The embodiment of perfection, pure, sinless, gracious, loving, merciful, pure. No one like him. And yet they hated him. Such is the wickedness and evil of humankind. And so you can imagine, here's Jesus' brothers, they've they've ridiculed him, they've mocked him, and Jesus says to them, you're not my brothers. You're of this world. Now Jesus brings his response to a close, and it's fascinating. The brothers started with a command, Jesus leaves them with a command. This is what he says to them, you go up to the feast. Their time is always. They can do whatever they want. There's no set mission for them. Jesus says, go. Go up to the feast. Go up to Jerusalem. And Jesus says to them, I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Meaning Jesus is, is planning, at least for a short while, to stay in Galilee. And he's planning not to heed the brother's command. He's planning on heeding his father's will. He'll go whenever his father sends him. And so we read the final verse. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, as I studied this passage, I got to the end and I thought, so, so here we have it. This intimate encounter between Jesus and his brothers. They ridicule him. They mock him. They taunt him. And Jesus then says, in essence to his brothers, you're of the world. You're not of God. You don't get the things of God. You're not living in, in conformity in step with the will of God. And the question is, is this this the same Jesus who who loves everyone? But let me tell you this. Jesus said all of this because he loved them. Because of his good and glorious, glorious purpose for them. You see, Jesus did go up to Judea. In fact, he goes up, next week we'll look at it, to the Feast of Tabernacles. And then six months later, Jesus went back up for the Feast of Passover. And there he was killed as the Passover lamb. And then we read on the third day, he was raised. So that all the world could see, he who died for sin, defeated sin and death, overcame the grave. And do you know what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15? Jesus appeared to his 11 disciples. Jesus appeared then to 500 people. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 says, And Jesus appeared to James, his brother. And then we get to Acts chapter 1 and we get to verse 14. And all of the disciples are gathered in the room waiting for the Spirit to come because it's Pentecost. And we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, And all of Jesus' brothers were there. Now, now, this is what happens. 
unbelieving, hard-hearted brothers mock, insult, taunt, reject their brother. Jesus obeys his father's will, does what his father asks of him, because he loves his father and he loves his people, and he wins salvation. And the first recipients include his earthly brothers. And, and you know what's incredible? Those whose life before, you know, they were going with the world, they were doing nothing truly that had any lasting eternal significance. We know this of James, the brother of Jesus. He became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He wrote the letter of James. And if you want to gather glean wisdom for life, you go read that letter. And this unbelieving brother who becomes a believer in the sweet and the perfect providence of God is used in ways unimaginable for the purposes of God in this world. So what does this mean for you and me? If you're a Christian parent, this gives you hope. There's no one too hard-hearted for Jesus to change and overcome and reveal himself. If you're a Christian parent, pray. Pray that the sovereign God would do his glorious work in the hearts of those that you love. And if you've grown up in a, if you've grown up in a non-Christian household, as hard as it can be at times, be patient. See beyond. Love them. Encourage them. Pray for them. And brothers and sisters, those of us who are Christians, we need to rediscover a life that is lived in step with God's will. And, and the, the paradoxical nature of this is that might mean this world hates us, but remember, it hated Jesus first. But if we face ridicule, if we face mocking, we're living for the Father's pleasure. And, and, when, and, and when people mock us or try and give us advice of what we should do with our lives, and trust me, that comes all the time, we need to learn to listen to the Father's voice over all the other voices that are competing and vying for our attention and demanding our devotion. And so we need to pray that God would soften our hearts and bring our hearts and our wills in step with his you know, I can well imagine that for the brothers of Jesus, they felt great regret at this conversation they had with Jesus. Maybe the same shock and dismay that Danielle and her husband had when Alexa sent their recording. But you know, in the sweet providence of God, this is left here as a record to say the things that we might live to regret can be totally transformed. And in the sweet providence of God, the record of James's words in his letter stand as a testimony for all to come and believe in his big brother, Jesus. Let's pray.